I am a bodybuilder. It was not that funny, okay? <laughs> I know I may not have the muscularity, I may not have the mass, perhaps I'm not as tan, as ripped as I could and should be, but I truly am a bodybuilder. And they say, are, are you delusional? What is your problem? Let me read it to you quickly. I'm gonna read it it's from the Bible. It's gotta be right, it's true. Listen, Ephesians says, some are pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Okay? So, thank you. So I am a bodybuilder, not the kind that you see on TV with all the muscles and tans and all that. But I'm a bodybuilder in the sense that God has called me to be a teacher and a pastor to help build up the body. So an analogy that's used time and time again to describe the church is the church is like a body. And we have many different parts in our physical body. There are many parts in our spiritual body, the church. And my job is to kind of be a, if you would, a, a spiritual personal trainer to build us all up. Because why? Because we need strength. All of us need strength. We need it individually and we need it as a community and as a group. Because as many people have said, we live in unprecedented times. We're living in a time of great cultural upheaval and revolution, if you would, when things that were once considered wrong are now right, what was right was wrong, what was insane is now trying to be passed off is literally sane. I see, as we've been looking at the last several weekends, that our family is under attack, our faith is under attack, and the future generations are under attack because many of these insidious teachings and ideologies are trying to be taught to young kids as young as kindergartners. Last week we talked about our three spheres where we live and operate. We talked about the church, right? That's where we are right now and this building is a church, but us collectively gathered and we go out, we are a part of this community, the church. Outside the church, we have culture. In the culture, we have politics, government, the corporate world, education, social media, sports, arts. We're all a part of the culture that we live in. We're not just a part of the church. We're also a part of the culture. It's where we all live. And then over and above that, what we've been talking about the last several Sundays is something that people call critical theory. And critical theory is an overarching term, really, that talks about a type of research methodology that or, uh, originated back in the 1930s at the Frankfurt School at Columbia University in New York. It's a group of Marxist thinkers who promoted a way of learning or a way of research called critical studies or critical theory. So you have 
Uh, you would have critical social justice theory. You would have critical race theory. You have critical gender theory, critical feminist studies, uh, critical queer studies, all these different ways of looking at society, looking at groups of people through a critical, if you would, lens. Now, critical theorists and, and the ideology that it's kind of birth, which I would call, it's not unique to me, it's a term they used to describe themselves many decades ago, neo-Marxists really do three things in any group or society. And the word neo simply means new, right? It's a new brand of Marxism. So three things they try to do. First of all, they divide societies into two groups of people, those who have power and those who don't have power. And the assumption is that those who have power always oppress those who don't have power. The second thing they do is try to decide which group is the most oppressed. Which group is the most oppressed? And that's discovered, as we looked at last week, through intersectionality, the different layers of oppression uh, an individual or a group of people may have. And then also, neo-Marxists, critical theorists, tend to demonize their opponents. They may say, well, we need to have a conversation about that, but if you disagree with this ideology, then you are labeled, you know, uh, homophobic, transphobic, xenophobic, racist, right? So instead of dealing with someone's arguments or dealing with them as an individual or a person and understanding their perspective, they really don't wanna listen. They would rather drown out and muzzle the other side as they shout their view on a megaphone. So. If you look at that, that chart there, critical theory really has imposed itself in almost every area in our culture today. It's been going on for a long time as we studied here in the past several Sundays, but uh, it seems to be more prominent uh, everywhere we turn. Think about it, ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, Google, Apple, New York Times, Washington Post, MLB, NBA, uh, NCAA, NFL, universities, colleges, public schools, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, Disney, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even McDonald's have embraced wholeheartedly or tacitly some form of critical theory of neo-Marxism. It's everywhere we go, everywhere we turn. It's, it's literally ubiquitous. And there are many people, as we looked at, that are pushing back, if you would, and making counter arguments to this particular worldview, this particular ideology. It's not just people speaking from pulpits. As a matter of fact, a lot of people are not speaking about this from pulpits. But within our culture today, here's some folks that are speaking out. Uh, Glenn Lowry is a professor at Brown University who was at Harvard. Uh, John McCorder, who's a professor at Columbia University and a linguist. Bill Maher, used to be a pastor on our staff, it's also. <laughs> I'm just kidding, he's not, he's an atheist, he's speaking out. Douglas Murray is an atheist. Dave Rubin, I think, is not an atheist, but he's speaking out, they're both gay. Uh, Lindsay and Pluckrose are, are both atheists, they're speaking in, against uh, critical theory. And then Jonathan Isaac, who I'll talk about in a little bit, and uh, Monique Dusan are also writing, talking, and uh, about, you know, just the, the other side of the arguments pushing back against neo-Marxism and critical theory. So it's interesting as, as you look at simply 
some of the theories of Marx that have been implemented in different areas of the world in the past 100 years. They failed every single time. Every single time this Marxist worldview has been applied to countries and groups of people, they have failed every single time, led to the deaths of over 110 million people. It failed in the Soviet Union. It's failed in China. It's failed in Vietnam. It's failed in Venezuela. It's failed in Cuba. Everywhere that it's been tried, it's failed. Instead of bringing equity and equality, it's brought slavery and greater degrees of oppression. So the thing that Marxism and its uh, clones that have followed in the last several decades, uh, they end up recreating the very thing they're critiquing. So they're trying to critique power structures and hierarchy, but they end up creating that very same thing in a deadly, deadly way that squelches folks' freedom. Now, the good thing about living in Houston is you can talk to people who have lived through uh, different uh, societies and countries that have tried to implement some degree of Marxism. I had a next door neighbor years ago that came to me and said, hey, Ben, what I hear being said in your country right now, the language I hear being used, all this stuff that's going on, it's the exact same thing that happened in my country of Venezuela before we left. So you can talk to people who have lived in Venezuela. There's some here in our congregation today or Vietnam or the Soviet Union or other former Eastern Bloc countries. They will tell you exactly what it's like to live under this type of oppression. Someone said years ago, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. You're doomed to repeat it. And that's my fear is that um, our country and other countries in the West as well are, are, are going down a suicide path of uh, trying yet another time uh, to achieve Marx's utopian dreams, uh, which have failed every single time. Um, as I've said, ideas have consequences, right? Bad ideas have bad consequences, but deceptive ideas have devastating consequences. So if I were talking to someone about different areas of critical theory, and as I said last week, I was trained in critical theory for three years. There are some good aspects to it. There's some great ways of understanding people and pain and problems. I might agree with different groups of folks and people and theorists but I, uh, with the problems, but I would radically disagree with their solutions. So one of the questions that I hear a lot today from folks in our church community, people I talk to from across the country, when they think about what's happening, when they think about the this layer of neo-Marxism or critical theory that seems to be sprinkled over every single aspect of our culture right now, people ask the question, what can we do? What can we do? If we want to you know, promulgate a different way of life, if we want to make a difference within that cultural space, what do we do? And then what do we do as Christians? a part of a local church? Well, we can turn to the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter number six, six, Paul launches in probably to the most detailed explanation of spiritual warfare we have in the entire Bible. 
because the battle that we're fighting, as we'll see in this passage, is not a physical battle. It's not really against other people, but it's against different types of forces and principalities. Here's what he writes in Ephesians chapter six. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's not against human beings, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark, dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, and it's here, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Now, I've been studying for this series and getting ready for it for months and months and months. And I've read scholars and writers and professors and lawyers and pro athletes and Christians and atheists and gays and agnostics and Democrats and Republicans and former socialists and theologians and pastors who are all speaking about what can we do in that cultural space in our society against this impending sense of, I think, deception and darkness called neo-Marxism? What can we do? All these folks keep using one word, and that's the word stand. Stand. What can we do in our public schools? What can we do as parents? we can stand. What can we do in our companies and our corporations in the cor corporate world? We can stand. What can we do through social media if you're into that? We can stand. We can stand. And when we stand, we need to stand with wisdom. We need to know when to stand and when to sit down. We need to know when to speak and when to be quiet. But we have to stand. This week I've been reading through this book, and if you're a, a, a student or anyone really, high school student or junior high, I really like it. It's called Why I Stand by Jonathan Isaac. I showed his picture up here earlier. And Jonathan Isaac has written a, a really cool autobiography about why he has stood up in the midst of all these culture wars. And he talks about, it's interesting, if you read the book, I encourage you to get it, Why I Stand by Jonathan Isaac. He talks about how a lot of it had to do what we're talking about, about identity and understanding my identity as an individual and my identity as someone who is now in Christ. And in that book, just like he did a few years ago, he encourages folks to take a stand. Here in our passage today, as we start to launch into spiritual warfare, Paul says what? You need to stand, you need to stand, you need to stand. So I've come up with something, I usually don't do this a lot, but why not? I think it'll be a good teaching tool for us. I've come up with an acrostic, S-T-A-N-D, stand. So if we're gonna stand, how do we stand? How, how do we stand? What does that mean to stand as a Christian in the church realm? What does that mean to stand as a Christ follower in that cultural space that we looked at? What does it mean to stand? Well, 
The S in the acrostic is strength. Strength. We need to stand in the strength and power of God. And we are strong when we what? When we embrace our weakness and we embrace our dependence upon him. We were singing about that earlier, right? So many of the, the songs we were singing were about surrender. I wanna surrender my life to God. I wanna give God my weakness because when I'm weak, I am strong. So we're to be strong. How are we, how are we to get strong? We get strong by putting on this armor of God, the full armor of God. Many scholars think that Paul was writing this letter to the church in Ephesus when he was in prison in Rome and that he was more than likely chained to a Roman soldier. So as he was chained to a Roman soldier, as he was writing this letter, he starts looking, wow, look at the armor that soldier's wearing. We need to put on a similar type of armor. So he goes through all the pieces of the armor, piece by piece, saying this is what the armor of God looks like. This is why you need to wear it. And this will help you stand in strength. Put on the full armor of God. I remember years ago, I was a part of a mission group that went to Amsterdam and Holland. And when we went there, th there was no city in Europe, maybe in the world, that was like Amsterdam. Tragically, in the last few decades, most of the world has become more like Amsterdam. But back when I went there, um, back in the late 80s, right, Amsterdam was just wheels off. I'd never heard of a place like it. Everything was legal. Drugs, legal. Prostitution, legal. All any type, anything you can imagine that's abhorrent and just, just off, off the page was completely legal in Amsterdam. So people flocked there from all over the world, all over Europe. And so we had a group of Christians also from all over the world that gathered there for about half of the summer. We would go out in the streets, in the different places there, the public areas, and we would tell people about God. Crazy. I mean, on the, on the way there, as you're walking there, I mean, the, the streets just reeked of pot, right? Instead of oxygen. So you're going to, you know, share the gospel and you're breathing in pot. You get there and there's Satanists there with bullhorns yelling at you. You're trying to talk to people. There are other people trying to, you know, sell you drugs. I mean, there are prostitutes that are in the window displays, like you're going to the gallery or something like that to go shopping. It is crazy, crazy stuff. So I remember thinking, wow, this is going to be pretty heavy stuff. You know, I'm going to have to go out into this type of world, this type of culture every single day for a while. What am I going to do? Well, I said, I'm going to put on the full armor of God. So I would get up and I would kind of read through these passages that we're going to go through the next several Sundays. And I would just put on the you know, the belt of truth, and the, the, you know, the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of sight. And I would go through and put them on. And then I would say, okay, man, I'm ready to go out. I'm ready to go out. I'm ready to take my stand. I'm ready to fight off the temptations that will be coming our way because I'd put on the armor of God. I think we're at a place in our culture today where we 
can't afford to walk around without God's armor on. We really can't. We really cannot. We've got to get his word, his truth, his armor into our hearts and into our minds. And we have to do that on a daily basis. That's where we're going to find that S, that strength, is by putting on his armor, depending upon him. The T in the armor is truth. He says, put on the belt of truth. The truth, the belt, going back to bodybuilding, that's the core, it's kind of important. You gotta have truth at the core of who you are and truth must be at the core of your being and truth is at the core of this armor of God. Now, one of the things that critical theory and it's, uh, powered by postmodernism is this whole idea that there's not truth. That may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Truth is relative, right? That's false. Anyone knows that. Truth is not relative. Truth is not your opinion. Truth is truth. Truth is real, whether we believe in truth or not. So, this, this movement, critical theory, neo-Marxism, is really anti-truth. It's anti-scientific. It's anti-arts. It's, it's the end of humor, in my opinion, as well. It's the end of creativity. It's the end of pursuing truth, whether you're pursuing truth empirically or rationally, or you're pursuing truth through revelation, through Scripture and Christ. It's the end of truth. And it's really a power play. It's a power play because they'll say, there is no truth, there is no truth, there is no truth, there is no truth, except for my truth, except for my truth, except for my truth, which I'm imposing upon you from the top down, top down, believe it, or you're phobic or this or that, right? So it's a power play. How do we fight untruth? How do we fight lies? With truth, with truth. We have a lot of folks here who have, overcome all kind of addictions. And then one of the first steps in overcoming any kind of addiction is to be honest, to admit that you were lying, to admit that there is a God and that he is true and following his way will help me get free and live in truth. Truth is at the core of who we are as followers of Christ. Jesus said what? I am the way, the truth and the life. He said, you shall know the, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And how does truth set us free? It's not simply believing in a proposition that there is a God, that the Bible's true, that Jesus is true. No, it's seeking to apply that truth in our life right where we live. That's what begins to set us free. We have an inbreak of God's grace, right? An inbreak of God's grace. And then we say, God, by your grace, by your power, by your strength, help me to walk day by day, step by step, aligned with your truth. And no one does that perfectly. No one lives out God's truth perfectly. We have to be faithful in that. I mean, If it weren't for driving around in Houston traffic, I might could live out God's truth perfectly. 
and make it to heaven on works alone, maybe. We can barely make it out of the parking lot and get swerving in untruth. So that's why we need to daily put on this armor and daily affirm our commitment to the truth who God is and then to live out that truth moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, right where we live. And as we start living out that truth, we tend to get more free. We're not gonna be totally free until we're pushing daisies, until it's over, okay? That's a whole nother message, but we're gonna live out as much truth as we can as God gives us that. And as we follow and obey him in that. So, what's the rest of the acrostic, A-N-D? We'll get that the following weeks. But next week, if you don't know this about me, I'm originally from the Carolinas, okay? North Carolina, South Carolina. Next week, we're gonna be joined by the Senator from South Carolina, Tim Scott will be here speaking. And yeah, Tim is a great guy. And we'll hear him and then we'll come back in the next few weeks. We'll continue to look at spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6 and we will get to the A-N-D in stand.